Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as what exactly is going on in Summerholm? How long is it until the Goblin Fire comes out this time? And we're in Summerholm already. Will we ever actually meet Warlock's son? <laughs> when pigs fly. Home is wherever you can order someone drowned and not get any odd looks. Dread Emperor Malignant the Third. A beautiful reminder of what it means to go home, which Catherine does in this chapter. She reaches Summer Home in Callow. And hangs out with some people. She talks to soldiers, but not the general. She goes over to Warlock's house, which is a defensive bastion only for him and his. That has no sign of life, but lots of magic. We learn about what fun surprises are being left out on everyone's doorsteps in Summerholm. Like, Santa leaving gifts. We learn uh, who this Santa is and why they're more like, here's a fun fact, an anagram of Santa, Satan, because they're bad. Am I right? Do, do you get it? Very, very clever. <laughs> uh, it is clever. I think we should all thank Erratic Arata for writing this. Thank you, Erratic Arata, for writing this. And in addition to thanking EE, there's a bit of thanks going on in this chapter. The story opens with something that wasn't in my summary whatsoever because it's not my job to read this for you. Read along. There's a name dream. And Black is camping in the wilderness. He isn't close enough to the wasteland for the things that roamed the night out there to be an issue. Thank the gods below. And should we? Do we? Does anyone? What's up with that? They don't really have prayers out East, they don't really have grounds for thanks. Maybe it's a weird Dooney thing? That was my thought, because Black is not conventional. He's a weirdo who says weird things. I 
I think that fits perfectly. We, I mean, next next chapter we get a little bit of information about him as a young person and find out, yeah, he was weird. So sure, he thanks the gods below sometimes. And you know, in the words of the philosopher John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats, it never hurts to give thanks to the local gods. You never know who might be hungry. Speaking of local gods, a stranger appears. A dark-skinned boy around Black's age, emerging from the greens, looking a little harried. He says, good evening. And we are told his voice was deep and smooth, the kind you could listen to for hours, even if the conversation was boring. And I really appreciate these reminders that Warlock is just the most affable, charismatic, likable monstrosity out there. Because he and Catherine never get along, so we don't get that perspective. He and his son enjoy a strained relationship for a good portion of the book. He's not on screen all that much. And he's married to an incubus, so when it comes to likable people, he's not the first one in his family my mind would turn to. But no, Warlock, despite probably accurate mage stereotypes, is just the best. I want to be his friend. He's fantastic, and you know, in this, he's he's just a boy. But we uh, we catch a glimpse of him here pretty soon from Cat's perspective. And uh, despite, like you said, uh, not a great relationship between the two of them, Cat likes what she sees. And uh, I, I think I think she speaks for all of us when she can't find the right words to say when she first sees him. Are you forecasting the next chapter and this chapter? Uh, yeah. Spoilers. Sorry, everybody. What if people haven't read that far? They'll be as shocked as when they find out that Warlock dies in Thalassina blowing himself up in the entire city because of well, because of a whole lot. There's a whole lot going on. So please keep the spoilers off our podcast. You're right. I'm very sorry. I love him. Uh, but speaking of things I love, the world that's built here. Warlock says in a ceremonial tone, I ask for the shelter of your fire, Traveler. And Maddie replies, granted keeping his relief off his face. This is not a custom either of them are really truly born to. We have a Dooney and this other boy, the future warlock, who, according to Amadeus, uh, the other boy's skin was too dark for him to be one of the desert dwellers. And so a custom that they're not even born to, in a place known for being evil is so intensely powerful, so intensely respected, that even though they don't necessarily entirely let down their guard, I assume they don't, we're not even told that, but, you know, they're just in the wild, so why would they? Mm -hmm. They share the fire. They, I mean, obviously, they become best friends in the whole world and kill so many people after this. Like all best friends do, yes. Been there, done that. But that's wild. That's so cool. That This is such... And evidencing of the power of of these nine words, ten if you count granted. They're magical. And, I mean, it's also evidence of the spread of the, the culture. You know, again, it's specifically said to be a Tagreb cu- custom, not a custom that is pricey at this point, but specifically to this ethnicity. So you've got this idea that's spread to these two people, at the very least, but presumably enough that you could walk up to a stranger and offer or seek shelter and assume that the other person is going to know what you're talking about and understand it and abide by it. Like that, that that's, that's some, some weight there for sure. Weight so strong that what I mean, 
pardon, that this strange newcomer also thanks the gods with the words, oh, thank the gods. I am just baffled at this point. Who are these children? And why do they think there's anything to thank in their deities? You know, when you're traveling and stressed and out in the wild of praise, you you do what you got to do. You thank the gods and hope it makes a difference, I guess. Especially if you're some kind of chump who doesn't even know how to make fire. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a, a little back and forth where Amadeus questions whether or not this stranger can make fire. And the response is uh, a grin followed by a, a demonstration of blue flame around his hand. Uh, not the sort you use in camp. Gotta say, I love him. It's it's very warlock. Sorry, apprentice, but it's it's very warlock to have incredible power. But I don't know. The little things are just not important enough to deal with. Every time we see warlock doing magic, it's a pretty pretty big a pretty big deal. Flashy, if not explosive, then at least very impressive. Uh, but it's his son who we see master more of the fine details, I guess. And so the utility things, you know, he can make a blue flame wreath his hand, but a campfire, uh, we'll find a stranger and hope that we can trust them. Maddie recognizes his skill and says, oh, it's a useful trick. Mage, the stranger nods and introduces himself. I go by apprentice. You? And I don't know if we know much more of this moment of the story our impressions of the formation of the calamities our impressions are given in broad strokes we haven't gotten to read the story yet ee please write the story for us but i'm willing to guess that this isn't particularly set up by anybody other than of course the apprentice is going to run into the i presume squire because what else would possibly happen this is such an amazing coincidence that it can't be. Is Black the Squire at this point? Don't we get uh, don't we get a mention that he doesn't have a name when he first starts meeting the calamities, the future calamities? Given that it's a name dream, he must have some piece of it, depending on how name dreams work. Oh, he could move into being the Squire, but I don't think maybe I'm maybe I'm misremembering it that he wasn't the Black Knight when he met them is what I'm thinking of. I I don't recall. We are the authoritative podcast, so it's only just that we aren't sure. I'm fairly certain it's been it's been mentioned in one way or the other in something we've already read. So, listeners, if you've listened to our podcast more carefully than we have, write or in. Or you would like to go through our archives with a fine-toothed comb. Either way, uh, email us, post on the Discord, on the Reddit. So, you know, let, a, let us know <laughs> this thing that we've definitely already talked about. And where could they email us? At thelongprice at gmail.com. Wow. A public-facing email. What a turning point. Uh, absolutely, yes. We, uh, that's what Pat thinks after this dream. She wakes up from it and wonders if it's a, a warning or an introduction. Um, the dreams she's had before were always turning points in Black's life. And then she kind of comes back to that thought. And Unless this was a turning point... And, I mean, Cat, he's meeting one of the biggest pieces of magical artillery in the world, and one of his closest friends, and yes, this is a turning point in Black's 
ability to affect the world. It's a turning point in the kind of influence he can have with his name. It's the it's the first member of his party, maybe. Well, uh, I mean, I guess if you count militia, it's an early member of his party. It's it's a turning point. <laughs> we, it's a turning uh, point for the world. So no big deal. I can't understand why your name why your name would show you this dream either. Catherine is incapable of interpreting these dreams, and the beast must be so frustrated. She's really bad at it. We've definitely talked about that before, that she comes out of these dreams and just has no idea what they mean. And to be fair, she doesn't have the foresight that we have in retrospect, I suppose. It's, you know, we've already read her story. But come on, Kat. But to be entirely fair to her, if she had a name dream where Black pulled out a note and it said, don't worry about this, this is where the next squire, hey, Kat, Billy's in town right now and don't trust the bard, she would ponder it for chapters. What could it be? Who is Billy? A bard? Well, that must be code for something. Oh, someone's playing me like a bard plays an instrument. Could it be the general? Maybe the general. Why wouldn't he meet with me? What's going the, on here? The note is written in Karsum. It's Hakram. It, it, it's, you could definitely see Kat struggling a bit, but that's okay. She's young and just not good at dreams. That's okay. Not everybody is. Uh, we get a little introduction to when we are, uh, when she says that uh, what's going on in this chapter is halfway through the month of Taj. Uh, another month mentioned here to start filling out our Kalernian calendar. Do not have two or three. Yeah, we have two or three, depending on whether there was a typo. Uh, we don't know when this one is in relation to the other month or month mentioned, so not exactly helpful yet. But it's another. We know it's game. eventually afterward, in case they don't have a cyclic calendar, but rather just keep getting new months, which would be a very cool system, if you ask me. Bad, but cool. Yep, it's but it's another name of a month, and uh, you know, it's interesting. I like it. But things are a little tense in Summerhome. We don't know how tense yet, but we do know how tense yet because Catherine is aware that some citizens had apparently been forced to quarter soldiers, and. At the best of times, that's not very beloved. And when the soldiers are the occupying oppressor, I mean, part of the American founding myth and founding history, in fact, is quartering troops in private houses became a major sticking point. And those troops were the British troops and the American colonists were British. That that was not they weren't orcs and now the american constitution has a whole amendment about it and not about many things that it should it's, but ooh summerholm's not in a good place yeah not uh, not great and as more and more details about the city and the population filter in through this chapter and the next it is frankly amazing that summerholm is not on fire that it doesn't need a good extra fire goblin goblin fire to clean it out because uh how this city is still functioning is kind of amazing with everything that's going on here i'm shocked that the imperial governor would allow this hmm. that will uh pay off later uh ju just cool. stick with us I'm don't excited. turn that dial i did not grow up in an age where televisions had dials but i certainly grew up with dial-based radios likewise yeah so 
she's going to meet the general. She doesn't. That doesn't happen this chapter. Don't worry about it. And she's a little worried about it because, you know, she's a half-orc Kalowin and he's crazy. He's part of a Soninke norm- noble family. And she thinks nobody so high up in the food chain would be affiliated with the True Bloods. But she knows that racism doesn't, quote, exactly disqualify people from command in the legions. And I'm, I'm curious about this. Because I, I'm sure racism doesn't disqualify because, theoretically, the way many people use that word, it means internal prejudice against groups, which is not really the relevant part of racism because it's a whole systemic blah, 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 blah. But, I mean, it's a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. Don't be racist. Grow up. But this is Black's legions. These are Black's legions. These are integrated legions with orcs and goblins and even subhumans like Callowins. See what I did there? Pricey point of view. But if you have a problem with racial groups, even other pricey racial groups, actually, they have a central dichotomy. And then there are the Dooney too, but they're below the dichotomy. You, I don't think you'd be able to get far. It, it, it would produce problems. Maybe prejudice against Callowins. You can get further because they were the enemy. All I'm saying, I think racism's probably not a boon to you under Black. There are barely any. The human leadership is so minimal. And one of them's a Callowin. It, yeah, I mean, I see what you mean, and I, I don't disagree fully. Like, if you were ranting about how inferior other races were and refused to, you know, ordered your orcs in first every time, not for tactical reasons, but to kill them off, yeah, you wouldn't move much. But up to a certain point, it's not like Black is overseeing every promotion that happens, uh... And once you get to a certain point, you can probably more or less make sure you're only interacting with the people the the people that you want to. I don't know. I I definitely can see a situation where somebody could climb pretty high up the food chain, uh, to use Kat's term here. That's um, one of the top fifteen or so before Catherine. Mm-hmm. So uh. uh I don't know. You gotta remember it's a military and militaries famously right are willing to use people who have beliefs that are fundamentally at odds with what the military is doing or about because they're still a warm body. Uh Dead King doesn't have that problem. Oh yeah. That I mean, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> good point, good point. But uh he doesn't he also doesn't really have a military. He has puppets so a little different but yeah fair but i think it'd be hard to get to general without you know being a without being the type of person having the kind of actions that make you a favorite of black sure especially in a legion that's mostly orcs um but yes black has black has a lot of control over the legions and his his favoritism to- is leans towards i don't know merit and also a dragon um which i just keep coming back to because what, what is going on with that uh cat though notes that she does her best not to show favoritism specifically towards rat company um she wants to integrate her entire legion here she's got a lot of people from rat company because of course she does 
But I have to say, she says, I, I'm careful. I'd been careful not to show outright favoritism. That, she's not that careful. <laughs> and uh, she's not, she doesn't try to stay very careful either. We're not far away from Kat just regularly getting together with the officers from Rat Company and feasting. Excluding all the other officers, nobody else is there. It's just Kat's friends from the from college <laughs> who get together before battles. Uh, she becomes involved, one might say, with a, with somebody from Rat Company. A member of Rat Company becomes her best friend and gains a name mostly through association with her. Cat doesn't do a great job of hiding that favoritism at all. Catherine Foundling is a woman of many layered plans, but she is a transparent being. Oh, yeah. She can't even hide her attractions. When she meets someone, she spends a paragraph on them, and then we immediately get two paragraphs of people noticing the way her eye looks them over. Yep. Good job, Catherine. <laughs> she's, li- she's living her best life. Well, job, Catherine. Some kind of job. Uh, I wanted to make a joke about Callowin Dentistry, coming up, but I'm going to make a more relevant comment once you make your comment. <laughs> uh, we just get a little turn of phrase here where uh, Kat says, I might as well bite the blade and get the politics over with. It's very clearly a faux medieval settings version of our bite the bullet. I just think that's fun that bite the blade works honestly just as well in the way it sounds. So I, I just like that. So to my understanding, the phrase bite the bullet is you clench a bullet in your teeth because you're about to have a surgical procedure and you gotta not, you, you gotta have something to do. Sure. So you chew on some brass. Uh, or, or brass? Lead. I mean, it depends did on when this. Yeah, I did say brass. Did, did they, was that a thing? Uh, I guess I was assuming like an unspent bullet with casing and all of that. In, I don't know. I'm just as uh, maybe it is supposed to be lead. I, I don't know when this originated. Maybe it might just be lead. Hey guys, don't chew on lead. Let's let's start there. No, I can make your drink a little sweet. So try putting some uh. wine in it. Uh, however, biting the bullet comes from that idea. But typically, you would use you know like a leather strap, like in Kafka's The Penal Colony. In the Penal Colony in the Strafkolonie, where people got to bite down on the little strap while they were in the apparatus. And I just, if the phrase is from the same origins, and you're having surgery performed on you with no or minimal anesthetic, and you are presumably not perfectly restrained because you're in a field situation, how often is that blade going to just straight joker you? (laughs) Well, Keep in mind, it's Kat saying this. This might be a turn of phrase from her deep background. Uh, if you have a second layer of teeth to protect your cheeks, you can fit a blade in there a little more easily oh. without as much risk. It's an orcish phrase. That makes right. so much right. sense. Right, exactly. Or at least Jorah orcish. Right. Jorkish. I, I, yeah, Jorkish. You got it. So we find out that she's got some money. She's looking for retinue. She wants to hire them. She's got cash. She's got a general salary, which I assume is, you know, nice. Because uh-huh. it is nice. But then she makes she makes the most fundamentally obvious note for us, in case we weren't aware. Uh, by Lauren, Lorian, 
by the standards of lore, uh, by Lorian standards, I had the means of a merchant from the upper crust. So she has the money of a wealthy person from the rich area of the poor place under imperial rule. But then she says, though I still fell way short of most landed nobles. Yeah, that, that that's how it works. Kat has a very well-paying job, and she feels the need to point out, but I'm not like a billionaire. Right. <laughs> exactly. You're never going to be a billionaire. Uh, you're never going to be rich, probably. It's... She does own a kingdom at one point. Yeah, one kingdom. What's that? <laughs> okay. She has one kingdom, one godhead, max. But, you know, you don't always need to be independently wealthy if you live in a welfare state. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, Germany or Preis. Or Preis, right, exactly. Uh, we uh, we learn a little bit about Nilin, that he's uh, kind of a nerd about bridges, apparently. Uh, it, <laughs> it's It's great. I, I love this little scene where he's glancing over the bridge and Kat is... Uh, instantly, like, what are you looking at, nerd? And uh, <laughs> there's there's a little bit of a chat where he explains this is a great bridge because it's Rome. I mean, Meetsen. Um, and we find out that Price uh, offers scholarships for uh, for university, the War College, that kind of thing. Um, and Cat is surprised she says i honestly still have a hard time believing the tower funds free education i don't understand why cat's surprised as that yeah price is evil like it, it, that's an objective fact of the world but it's also a functioning government so yeah it funds education for its citizens right like that that's just like how states work i thought <laughs> i mean actually though uh i suspect you're making a bit of a dig at the what more or less failed american state but what what what? i can't believe you would say something like that i say more or less failed and there's a lot to critique even on the positives i'm about to say but the u.s which famously does not support education in any way shape and or form and if you want to go to school join the army and go kill people for it we do have education for at least 12 years that in all historical terms, is unbelievable, unbelievably deep, unbelievably wide. I am privileged to be very well educated by most standards, but I'm not, I'm not a scholar of more than one thing. And yet, I know a little bit about practically everything. I was talking to a four-year-old, and I could answer questions about literally everything that came to his mind. Oh, how do clouds work? Let me tell you. Oh, how do ants know where food is? Let's talk about pheromones. Oh, do you want to know what stars a billion, billion miles away are doing? Yeah, burning, floating around, imploding, exploding. Sometimes they rotate a lot. It's wild. So um, I don't know why I defended America here, but I did. And now it's on record unless I cut this. Well, it's less defending America and more pointing out a state Even that fail exists, states, right? Yeah, a state that has a like an apparatus of functioning control over its land. So you know, a a state that exists funds education for its people. I mean, like that's just, uh, and I know that's a pretty modern conception, I guess, of how it works. But yeah, still, ah, uh, the second use of the word apparatus today, sadly, not in reference to Franz Kafka's 
in their in their Straf colony. I I don't really care for Kafka, but it's got a great apparatus in this story, <laughs> uh, and it's free online for anyone who can read German. And if you can't, it's free online for anyone who can read English. And if you can't, you know, I'm really sorry. Uh, illiteracy is one of the more less understood and more discriminated against classes you can occupy. Also, thanks for listening to a podcast about something that maybe you haven't read. Thank, you know, thanks for hanging out with us, basically. Uh, though I must admit, at least one of your beloved co-hosts, our dear listeners, does do most of their reading with their ears. That all said. Uh, so we talked a little bit about Precy education, and uh, we learned a little bit about goblin education, actually. Uh, oh. <laughs> uh, we find out that uh, Nilin has a habit of lecturing when he gets drunk. Uh, he doesn't get rowdy like everybody else. Instead, he does things like spending half a bell lecturing Robert on why it was exceedingly rude to insinuate people from Wolof still practice mass sacrifice in the maze of kilns. Now, first of all, I think I really like Nilan. Second of all, I got such bad news for you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't, don't, don't tell me that. Uh, second of all, half a bell lecturing Rob. Why did Robert allow this? Like he just sat there and let this human lecture at him about Wolof? I don't I know. I figured it out. Oh, okay. Tell me One, in. he's a very entertaining speaker, entertaining lecturer. He's pontificating while inebriated, and he's got that kind of unsteady flow that is something to watch. But more okay. importantly, look at what it says. He spent half a bell lecturing Robert on why it was exceedingly rude to insinuate people from Olaf still practice mass sacrifice in the maze of kilns. It's rude to insinuate it, but nothing here says that they don't do it, because it's very obvious that they do, even if officially they don't. And so every time he was speaking, he had to carefully bound his statements and go back and try to reframe and retread while not entirely coherent. And so there was the amusement of watching someone fall apart in attempting to explain the social faux pas while, not, while trying not to trip over the facts of the matter. Also, Robert probably wants to know exactly how he's pushing people's buttons, and this would help with that. Now he knows exactly why it's rude. He's got a scientific mind. He does. Such a powerful man. I love him. So it's a maze of kilns. Mm -hmm. As awesome and probably horrifying as I suspect it is. How can it not be? It's First of all, it's in Wolof, so like, yeah. Have you ever climbed in a kiln? Into one? Yeah. I... Uh... No, I don't believe so. I've climbed on one, like an adult, yeah. but... We we had a few old lime kilns where I grew up. Mm -hmm. uh, well defunct, but they're cool. It's like, oh, oh yeah. this is where they did big old fires. Right. And I think we need to bring them back. Not necessarily lime kilns. I don't know what the economy is doing there. The economy is pretend, and economists are liars. But we need big old fires again. When was the last time you saw a big old fire? How big does it need to be to count? Like, big old. I saw a car on fire not too long ago. Does that count? It was a pretty big fire. I mean, I do appreciate the blows struck against the automobile industrial complex, so sure. I don't think that blow is striking who you're hoping it is. No. They meet the greeters, and the officer that comes forward to say hi in an official way to Catherine was a senior tribune. That's great. She tells us, 
Afalabi could have gotten away with sending me someone lower in rank as a greeter. That he'd bother sending someone that high ranking was a good sign. And I really like this about Kat. She hates ceremony. She sees the value of it as an indicator of where things stand and she's going to use it. But it's so dumb and bad. But she understands it and she uses it to her advantage sometimes. But she hates it, even though it's a useful avenue of communication. She just can't square the two. And that's good. We need dissonances. We need dialectics in our life. She's she's pretty good at ignoring ceremony when she needs to, uh, to just get something done. But also, ceremony has a weight to it in a way that is true in our world, like, absolutely. But it also, in a world where stories that are done repeatedly get uh, a, almost a physical way to real change in reality... Ceremony seems like it would be pretty important, and especially for named. Falling back on that kind of thing can help cement where your story is, where you are in relation to other people, especially other named. Ceremony is a big deal in this setting, I'm saying, and it's more evidence that Kat is too powerful for this world that she can ignore it so easily, so frequently. And ignoring ceremony is still a use of ceremony. So Summerholm is a super fortified place. It's far from the front lines. It's got two legions and a warlock. And yet everything seems uneasy, which is wild because it not just uneasy. The senior tribune Fadia says that she's instructed to answer all of Kat's questions, but the conversation she wants to have is not one that can be had in the open. And Kat's like, what's going on? How could there be anything wrong? attacking a place like this would be bald idiocy. He's right. Yeah, but she's the inciting incident of the bald idiot himself. <laughs> uh. Has she met Bill? She thinks about him every day and blames herself for him as she should. And also blames him for herself. Huh. Poor cat. Yeah. And then her next thought is, was this relating to Warlock? Which, sure, he, he's a named character. He's got weight. That actually is relevant. But that immediate distrust, things are going weirdly here. And Warlock's here, the best friend of my soon-to-be father figure? Why, it's probably got to do with him. Cat, give him a chance. <laughs> it's Bill! It's always Bill. Uh, I do want to note that, that sentence, was this relating to Warlock? The calamity was, as far as I knew, still in the city. That guess by Cat, that thought by Cat, uh, keep that in mind for next episode, because there's not quite a callback to it, but something related to that that's kind of interesting, given Kat's current thoughts on the matter. So they head on to the palace, and it is remarkably austere, I remind you, in Callow. So the standards are already... Right, sure, sure, sure. Callow is... But Kat, Kat says that the Commodore Palace is remarkably austere, compared to its equivalent in lore and sure that's worth commenting on i suppose for cat but i have to point out yes i would imagine that the seat of power of a count in a, an important city to be sure but a city is not going to compare favorably to the seat of power in the capital like one one of those is going to have more resources at its disposal. One of its going one of them is going to be larger just by the hey, I'm gonna do it a third time. The apparatus that it has to hold. Yes, 
it, Summerholm doesn't have as nice of a palace as lore. You, you're correct, Kat. When I lived in New York City, I attended services at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, which is the fourth largest church on the planet. And since leaving there, every, nearly every house of worship I've been in, with the exception of a pair of basilicae, which is my plural of basilica, has been, quote, remarkably austere, because that's how the best compared to other works. In fact, any house of worship any of our listeners go to, unless they're at one of the dozen on earth that are bigger, will be remarkably austere. Though actually, that cathedral is remarkably austere. It's not heavily decorated. It's dark. It's big. It's immense. It's very cool. It They welcome sightseers. If you're in Morningside Heights, check it out. It's a really cool place. I promise you, regardless of any category you occupy, you are welcome. They're Episcopalians. They're chill. But despite being remarkably austere, this place has tapestries that show hunts or battles and a whole bunch of imperial defeats. And Catherine says that if the amount of imperial defeats showing was any indication, nobody had bothered to change the tapestries since the conquest. Which, sure, yeah, but I think that's such a power move. You take the untakeable city, yeah, leave up the memorials to how untakeable the city is. Oh, yeah. Hey, you know what's great about Istanbul? It's a city no one could take, ever. And then they did. And, you know, for similar reasons. You, Istanbul fell because there was a really, 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 really big piece of artillery. Calamity's had one of those, too. That said, it's been Ram? twenty. it's been 20 years since the the conquest at this point it's not that nobody has bothered to change them it's not like uh the imperial defeats there may have been a propaganda component the at one point at this point it's it's inertia if i have something hanging on my wall for a decade who am i kidding if i have something on my wall for three weeks it's there literally forever why would i move it at that point it belongs there i'm not going to change my mind about something on my wall after i've seen it there for more than a few days I'm not even willing to change the page of the calendar for a few months, apparently, based on my recent behavior. <laughs> I mean, same. I don't. Th- we have a calendar on a wall, and it changes sometimes, but let me tell you, it has never been me. Catherine tells us that there's cooled wine on the table, and she says it was a little early in the day to start drinking. Readers, I will now provide 10 agonizing seconds where you can guess the next word. Five-second warning. Hint, it's a conjunction. Did you guess the next word was but? Good job. Speaking of cool words, however, Fadia tells Catherine that the information she's going to share here in the palace is considered restricted, saying, send your guy out. I don't, I don't want him here. Just this for you only. And Catherine's response is, Catherine's internal, or at least conveyed to us by whatever means the story is supposedly conveyed to us well bully for her and that's just great i wish i used that i wish more people used that i was thinking the same thing when i read this Uh, why do i not say bully for someone like that's such a good term also you you know we've run into this a few times is is this cat's journal is this just you know first person narrative viewpoint whatever 
how about we just assume from now on that what's going on is Kat is actually constantly breaking the fourth wall and just speaking directly to us mid-scene, like taking an aside every time there's her, you know, every time there's a first person going on here? See, that's the thing. Uh, I think that's the best choice, no doubt. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But since, not even in graduate-level literature discussions, but since grade school, there's been discussions here and there in literature classes, or as it was called back in the day, language arts, or English. But there's been discussions about point of view. Yeah, we need to learn about perspective. We need to learn blah, blah, blah. How is this being conveyed to us? What's the former supposed to see this take? Oh, look, this story is in first person, so clearly the main character can't die. And this is the first... This podcast is my first long-term Let's Discuss Literature for literally dozens of hours. And I'm running into it time and again, but here's the thing. It annoys me so much that people actually put weight into it because it doesn't matter. You know what? If Catherine died halfway through the book and it switched perspectives and just kept going, I wouldn't be asking myself, well, how did her words get to us? That's just the way the story was told. Get over it. If we find out it's a journal at the end and it's laid down, that could be a cool thing. Or sure. if, but this is how long have you have humans? How long has human civilization, human storyteller tradition just been, this is the story of whomever, or these are the words of the great hunter, blah, blah, blah. Just, just tell me a story. Let me feel things. Like, perspective can inform things, and uh, point of view definitely it can indeed as must. well. It, for sure. And it is important, but the unless the conceit, uh, unless there's a conceit within the text that relies on the conveyance of the material to the reader in some way it yeah you just say this is the perspective of the story it doesn't there's no need to know exactly how it comes to you to insist on inserting a conceit is itself conceited approach the text as it is written that's not a comment on death of the author and not getting involved in that ee <laughs> is alive and well to my knowledge but just don't add things to a text when you're discussing it. Go with what's in there. Catherine is visiting a palace. She's a half-orc. Cordelia's proud of me. Just what the text says. Exactly. And something the text has been telling us all along that I have complained about a couple of times, Cat finally comments on, and that's great. Uh, there's uh, 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 Fadia, the, the... What was the right? Senior tribune? Yeah. Uh, Yes. Fadia, the senior tribune, says that there are more. There are at least two heroes in the city, likely more. And Cat gripes, uh, whatever happened to the lone in Lone Swordsman? This is unacceptable. Do you see Black prancing about in white robes? It's called a name, not a suggestion. And she is so right. It, this is... If you've been listening to this podcast, you know I've complained about this. The lone swordsman is always around other people, and here he has a, a band of heroes with him. Listen to your name. What are you doing? We just had his inter his interlude where this kind of thing came up. It, like I said, the text has been telling us about this. I'm glad that Kat is finally upset about it, because I've been upset about it since day one. This is unacceptable. And in fact, Catherine gets it. This isn't really just a gripe. So she is griping, and it says, I griped, great speech take. But when she becomes a black queen, when she becomes first under the night, when she just becomes a scary woman, what does she do? She dresses herself like a scary woman. That makes her scarier. And because she's scarier, she's scarier. It's self-reinforcing. It's a great world for this. Right. 
Speaking of scary things. Okay. We have the ladies. We have uh, Fadia getting uncomfortable with Catherine's agitation. And Nilan speaks calmly. The Lady Squire isn't one to blame the messenger, Senior Tribune. There's no need to fear for your life. And Kat is astounded to realize what the situational subtext was because she's used to a more civilized age. But by golly, I'm telling you, she learns from this kind of thing. She says, Prace is bad. And she's right. Prace is bad. And Catherine's response to learning every bad thing about Prace is, can I adopt this into my toolkit? People fear for their lives around me. I should make sure to maintain that. Hmm. Occasionally, I even may need to be scary. She's great. Everything about this is bad. How can I do it? There is a difference between being scary to your underlings and being scary to everyone else, which Kat definitely recognizes. The The trope of the villain who destroys the underling, who brings bad news or whatever, uh, is a rough one for a number of reasons, but partially because it's just a terrible decision to make. The 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 Killing the messenger benefits you in no way and actively harms you. People aren't going to tell you things now. How can you make informed decisions if you're never informed? And Kat gets that. She wants to, she she emulates Prace, but she doesn't emulate the parts that would be harmful to her goals. The parts that maybe, if I may, <laughs> maybe the, she she doesn't emulate the the parts she doesn't emulate are they're impractical. <laughs> I'm really glad that you enjoyed that. I I know that that whole bit right there was just for you. Yes. I hate to tell you the truth about the podcast. Honestly, so fair. Listeners, we love you dearly, but this is all just for us. And I hope you recognize that by now, 37 episodes in, but it's the truth. And if you want us to keep making this for us, patreon.com slash P-T-T-E-E. There it is. (laughs) Speaking of fun, uh, but with the cap, putting the fun in fun. You get there. Catherine says, I'd have to go a long way to ever top forcing a high lord to build an alligator pit at their own expense just to push them into it. But why would she want to top it? That's so satisfying. She wants to do that. She's being practical about it, but it hurts her to be. She pays a price. Kat asks for some tactical information. She wants to know if uh, they've been able to identify any of the heroes. Obviously, we know Lone Swordsman is here. Kat knows that. Everybody knows that. Uh, But... uh, uh, Fadia is able to say, we know a thief is currently active in the city. A thief. I understand that names, especially names that are as broad as thief, show up a lot. Like, that's the whole point. But it's weird whenever names are treated as job titles, as, uh, I don't know, categories of people like this. Not the thief is in the city, or thief is in the city, but a thief. You know, one of those guys, one of those people that steals things is in the city. It's kind of a weird article to use, especially since the next sentence is refers to her specifically with a recent theft fits the pattern she displayed when she was last in Summerholm. It's, you know, the thief we know we're talking about, but it's a thief. This is the briefing scene. And so it's not, you know, just a thief, but rather saying, oh, yes. There is a certain Amadeus of the Green Stretch going about. That's what's going on here. I suppose. I think that's a. I think that might be a bit of a stretch for 
how this information is presented. A green but... one? Okay. So, anyway. The thief is stealing keys, so they need to figure out why, because the thief can get in. Oh, wait, obviously it's for the team. Which, I say obviously, I think that's a pretty nice leap that happens instantly. Mm-hmm. I know many a TTRPG party who would not get anything for that information. Many? You mean any TTRPG party ever? And we are told that is General Afalabi's conclusion as well. Lord Warlock has set up defensive wards over key positions, but he's informed us that they have countermeasures blocking his scrying. And, sure, Warlock isn't the ultimate answer to this in an immediate way. It's not just, boom, problem solved. That will pay off later, bear with me. <laughs> but not being the answer to all the problems doesn't mean he hasn't solved a huge amount. He's put wards over key positions. That's immense. One guy just being in town and not really putting all his efforts into it. Just, boop, okay. Now it's really hard for them. It's so great to have a Calamity on hand. I mean, Also, he's really nice. I would like him to live next door or with me. I want to be his friend. Even the second half of that sentence, he's informed us that they have countermeasures blocking his crying, is useful. Knowing that there's somebody here who has a countermeasure capable of blocking warlocks scrying it may not be a specialty but he's the warlock cool you know a little bit of extra information which we hear from nilan and as a response to this then they either have a priest or a mage of some talent some talent you can everything here just needs such massive sarcasm by diminution quotes around it oh you know blocking the scrying of a guy who yeah scrying's not his thing but he also has improved the art of it entirely because yeah they've got a mage with some ability to block that it's it may be the defense is easier than offense in this sphere but yeah (laughs) there's it's uh i think nilan just is saying they have a named mage because honestly still you'd have to be pretty powerful or pretty lucky to bumble into some way to stop warlock Ah, there it is. That one will pay off later. It paid off last chapter. That one will pay off earlier. <laughs> uh, you know, we were talking about little... useful. Yes. Uh, we we were talking earlier about how is this city still functioning given everything that's going on. Uh, and this is a little bit of a, a nod to that. Uh, Fadia says that things quieted down when Lord Warlock entered the city. Cool. So the people of Summerhome are, you know, reasonably intelligent people. I, I, I'm pretty fond of people willing to demonstrate against the uh, excesses of the oppressor class. That's Hats excellent. Off to the French. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's excellent, noble work. However, if the warlock were in the city, I would say maybe stay home for a little bit. All it takes is crossing whatever line he has set, and you don't have a city anymore, and that's not good. So you're proposing that they just quiet down, that they submit, that they form truce with the enemy? You know that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying don't die to the warlock. Yeah, well, you know what? Some people aren't cowards like you. Because every morning, there is an officer carved up in the streets, and carved on them it's the phrase, no truce with the enemy. Fadia tells us, our healers say that the wound pattern means they're still alive when the message is carved. So, violence isn't the answer. 
but no truce with the enemy and fighting the oppressor, the agents of oppression. Hey, if you're resorting to violence, one of the better directions for it, but carving it onto a living person's face while they're living as you torture them to death is a whole choice for the heroes to make. Yep. Uh, I may present to you the heroes of this arc. This I'm is almost a... thinking it might be better to work with the priests than them. Yeah, kind of a rough crew. So we can agree that Catherine has never and never will do anything wrong? You can agree that, sure. As they meme on the Tumblr, okay, nice dichotomy, idiot. What lies outside it? That's pretty good. I'm unlike Reddit, Twitter, and Facebook. I've never had to leave my social media. Nice. Uh, when Cat hears about this and everything going on, the sort of pot that is nearly about to boil over and uh, that is Summer Home, she starts to be concerned and starts to question sort of Trace's involvement here. She says, the man is a calamity. He, the man here being Warlock. He'd been oh. part of. <laughs> he'd been part I, of the, I, I, the lone yeah. swordsman. Yeah, sure. He'd been part of the crew to conquer Cowell in the first place. Why wasn't he stepping in before things got out of control? Weeping heavens! Why wasn't Black ordering him to intervene? First of all, still on the heavens. Come on, Cat. Second, Cat really doesn't get it yet. Black ordering the calamities is not typically the way things work. Like sure. in battle, sure. Right. Black is in charge, and I don't think any of them would question that just like cat is in charge of the woe but delivering orders is not typically the way it works i don't think but also yeah warlock helped conquer the conquer callow but we all know that (laughs) warlock helped conquer callow because his buddy asked him to i think because he could because it gave him a chance to go up against the wizard of the west do you think we'll ever hear more about him um very mysterious fellow he is and the idea that he's now, like, come to Callow and is very concerned with how the Callowans are viewing Prace and where how the government is starting to fit in with this new population. He's the warlock. You know, it, that's not really what he's about. And also, if it were and he weren't doing something, there's probably a pretty good reason for it. Or maybe he's just bad and not good and Catherine should be distrustful and he's the enemy and they don't have a good relationship yeah so plot is laid we're gonna figure things out she's gonna have to go meet with the warlock we have a bit of a wrap-up tying up some and sending runners what have you Catherine says send a runner to juniper we're walking into a shed full of sharpers and someone just stole a matchbox fantastic great line shed full of sharpers Brings to mind a tangent I'm not getting into, but all right, there is a poetic device at play here, right? Shed full of sharpers. Great alliteration. Mm-hmm. We're going sha sha sha. Same sound at the start of a thing. We all had a poetry unit in school at some point, right? Sure. But alliteration is actually hugely fundamental to the development of, at the very least, Germanic poetry. And by Germanic, I mean English, Icelandic, German, Gothic, what have you. And actually, speaking of Icelandic, part of the reason we know more about the history is because Snorri Sturluson actually told us how things worked back, oh, 800 years ago now? But the 
role of alliteration in ancient and medieval Germanic poetry, we don't know much about ancient, but we gather that writing is a very recent technology in the scale of human existence. It's so fundamental that it forms arguably the most vital basis for great swaths, if not nearly all swaths of Germanic poetry, with the only more vital component possibly being syllables, which at that point we might as well say, well, you can't use it without words. And it's just really cool. And I encourage you to look into it. And it's not my field, but it's fun. And how does it work in your non-Germanic languages, listeners? Just for my benefit, I, I'd love to listen. It's cool. And so is the line shed full of sharpers. <laughs> it's a good one, for sure. Uh, when this conversation began, uh, our friend Fadia, Senior Tribune Fadia, was concerned about Kat's whole thing. Uh, you know, this, <laughs> this villainous leader of, a, of a, one of the legions maybe taking taking out the her frustration with the message on the messenger uh she's clearly gotten over that because uh as cat is getting ready to head out fadia says the general has also respectfully requested that uh you not bring goblin fire stocks within city limits and that is wow being it just saying that to cat you have to be very, very certain that she's not going to hold it against you because that is, uh, <laughs> that's getting right at her. It's a, that cat is seen here is what I'm saying. We all know he is a great writer and all blah, blah, blah. And I don't want to make this out to be more than it is. It's just a moment of good writing and a thing full of good writing. But I really appreciate the power of placing the word uh in the middle of that. The general has yes. also respectfully requested that uh, you not bring goblin fire stocks within city limits. Absolutely no semantic meaning. Mm -hmm. There is no explanation of what it means. But the presence of that demonstrates the whole emotional state, the whole yeah. social situation, the whole sure. two letters, just a good old uh, love it. It's very good. And we end the section, but not the chapter, with time to find Hakram. I had a few questions to ask the Sovereign of the Red Skies, and he'd better have some good for our rating. Let's just say, gosh's darned answers. There it is. And I appreciate that she's driving to a point, though, again, mad hostility for your pre-father's best friend. But, Catherine, you're 12 years old. This is the Sovereign of the Red Skies. We don't know how he got the name yet, if this is our first time reading, which it better not be, but he's a Sovereign of the Red Skies. Cool it. Be be a little meeker. What if he doesn't take a liking to you? Yeah, uh, her plan here, the implied plan to march up to Warlock and demand answers is especially funny, given the internal praise, I guess, that she gives him, the ranking she gives him next chapter, uh, where, uh, sneak peek, she refers to him as one of the five most powerful mages in all of Kalernia, and this is how she's approaching him. Very bold, Cat. Cat has met up with Hawkram, and he gives her a little uh, update on the legions in the city, um, that morale is low, because the legions weren't designed to suppress civilian unrest. 
And Kat is kind of walking through this internally, talking about, thinking about what's going on, what all this, how all this ties together. And we get just this little gem of a half sentence or so. The Legions of Terror were not a peacekeeping organization. Did the name give them away? Like, <laughs> all the Legions of Terror, Cat. Come on. Oh, it's so good. I I love Cat so much. And I really appreciate the attention to detail. That's, you know, it's information to have. Some armies are built around peacekeeping. The Legions of Terror, not one of those armies. And yet... Wherever Catherine goes is immediately put under martial law. Hmm. Lore. Okay, kill the governor. Summerholm. Okay, kill the governor. Summerholm too. Okay, governor is dead. Oh, by the way, the governor is dead. Boom. Pay off for something earlier. You're welcome. Nice. I'm worried that Catherine's going to try to bring peace to the entire continent by the sword at this rate. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. What if she does? She, she's going to do that by contract, which is awesome. Right. I mean, she's going to put. Peace to the continent through terms and conditions. And a little bit of sword. Yeah, a little bit. Teeny war. <laughs> we get a little bit of foreshadowing again, which we get constantly and some very blatant, uh, a very blatant variety of it next chapter. But um, Akram is taking care of some things, uh, in this case, mingling with the rank and file of the 12th, figuring out where they're at mentally. Uh, and she's happy about this and says Akram had a way of putting the finger on problems before I even noticed they existed and setting out to fix them and uh, yep does he now interesting uh, I wonder why he's so good at that and if that goes anywhere it's it's great just a little little sprinkle another another little dash of uh, of what Hakram is to become you praise Hakram but you overlook Catherine's similar ability to really Put a name to put a distinct and clear power level on what's going on around her. They get to the bastion where Warlock's hanging out. And she walks right up to it, lays a hand on the wooden doors and draws it back. And then she says, having touched the Warlock's tower, mm-hmm. magic, powerful stuff. <laughs> I, I'm just, am I supposed to go up to a river being used to power a hydroelectric station, put my hand in the water and say, current, powerful stuff, and be treated as some sort of sage? <laughs> it's... <laughs> we get, uh, I mean, we get a little more context following this, a little more information that's actually really interesting, but yes, uh, water is wet, fire's hot, the warlock has powerful magic around him. Put a hand on the saint of his swords and have it fall off and say, blade, sharp stuff. <laughs> My mind also went directly for the saint of swords as another example. So that's good stuff right there. Uh, but we, yeah, powerful magic. Great. We know Kat can feel magic and sense magic. And bring. I, I like to bring this up and discuss how she interacts with magic. What What part of her, since we have a theme this morning sensory apparatus is directly interfacing with the magic around her. Uh, but you don't want to interface with the apparatus in the penal colony. Right. Just only your sensory apparatus with magic. That's acceptable. Um, she says that she doesn't think it's a harmful magical effect that she's sensing here because it feels prickly when there's an active pattern. This is passive, if anything. Um, and then just one more 
when she pushes open the door and steps through, she feels something wash over her skin, but nothing else happens. So this is a very touch-based magic here, or at least a touch-based sense of the magic. It's prickly, it's, or rather, this is not prickly. It washes over the skin. It's, I don't know, it, it oftentimes magic in stories is very, as opposed to magic in real life, magic in stories is very mental in how it is sensed unless it's visual but having this this physical touch to it is I, I just like it i like reading about it every time it comes up and uh just noting it when i see it it's fantastic and speaking of fantastic things when you raise a child mm-hmm. it's important to shield them from all consequences never let them experience failure intervene before anything can be too hard for them right close but but the opposite Oh, then Warlock's a good dad because, well, I don't know what's going to happen, but as they enter the parlor, there are voices, and the voices suddenly rise in volume, and Catherine can hear, got out again! Something got out again! And I don't think Warlock would be making these mistakes by himself because he's the guy who contracted an incubus so hard that he achieved true loyalty and lifelong love and companionship yay even past the bounds of contract and i like that he's letting the kid learn i think you hit the nail on the head at the very beginning of of that discussion point he's a good dad it's great it's it's nice to have a good dad in this story that doesn't stab his child or get stabbed by his child no stabbing great model of the parent-child relationship Shame he has already inflicted fundamental trauma on the kid, but eh, what's he going to do? <laughs> but at least he didn't stab him. <laughs> exactly. And parenting is about reducing traumas, not preventing them. Also, parenting is about not stabbing your kids. I cannot stress this enough. Parenting is about knowing the proper limits for yourself and for your child and for your podcast. And we have unfortunately reached that limit because that is all the time we have for today. Join us, children, next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Greta as we discuss... The pork. The mages. And debate. Or maybe the, um... <laughs> Wait in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Badum Tish was Rimshot Joke Funny by Pixabay. Music for the epigraph was Waves and Tears, Sad Piano Music with Calm Ocean Waves by Julius H. Outro music which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine is The Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter, unfortunately, at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. 
E. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name. Receive personalized stories and art and access at least one patron-exclusive tangent. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Grey. Our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named. Our patron and guardian, the Fey Knight, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 5, Recognition. <laughs> <laughs>